0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to the Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hey, Nubians, we're here. Um, And uh, Dr. Carr, um, today is the 86th edition. Yes, we are uh, we are rolling down the river here. and let me just say, um, office hours has become a thing. So those of you who are in Nubia, you know uh on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, Dr. Carr uh fields questions. And uh a few weeks well, ago, in
1: conversation. In conversation.
0: You're, you're in conversation. This is this is yeah. you know, last
1: It wasn't the question last time. What you about to tell him? I'm still shook yeah. by it. I, listen, <laughs>
0: it. I have not stopped thinking about it because I, I remember early on in, in class, we had um a family come in. I think it was three children and it was a little boy, 10 years old. I think it was yes. Tariq Abdul. I think they had their kids. Um and I thought the mom was going to ask oh. mom, do you remember this? And she had oh, yes. Okay. okay. And the little boy, because I think he reminded you of of Ellington. Yes. He, uh he was so present. And it was at that moment, Dr. Carter, mm-hmm. that I realized, you know, that that vision that you, you gave us of, of Africans around a tree with different ages, multi-generational, mm. with elders talking and sharing that we had we had arrived there. On Monday, last one of the last question askers um, came in and I looked and her little face popped up with her little bow in her hair, oh. eight-year-old Olivia with her smile and her presence, her bright eyes and her clarity and her, you knew she wasn't coached. You knew that she had been in class with car. Mm digesting the information at eight at and eight. had a question for you. And I said in that moment to myself, cause I wasn't in there with you and your Reyes. I said, we have a responsibility um, that I knew we had, but it's, it's even deeper because the children are watching and uh, we owe it to them to not just present our best, but not just to, to in, in inspire them and enlighten them, but to to make sure that the world that we leave is so much better than it is now, so I just wanna first of all thank your interaction with her. Just gave me joy. I'm still basking in it.
1: Me too. I think we were all basking, and and you were in there. We were all in there. I know I know what you mean, but I mean we all we all saw the same thing. And if you are not in a narrative and not in Nubia, you'll have to um, just imagine. But imagine the most pure imagine the most just not only authentic but an inviting but really demanding demanding in the best sense of the word young spirit this child's eyes were just shining and like i said she had that little bow in her hair and we were like oh i love that bow and she just smiled a little wider and she's sitting there with her mother and Her mom said, you know, we use this as part of our homeschool curriculum. And of course, that's just stunning because there is a long history. In fact, the history of African people educating ourselves um, since we have been in this long season of struggle, we call the modern world system and brought into it as what. Carter Woodson were referred to as bondspeople, bondsmen, bondswomen. In that 1944 article, he writes about his father and his father's father, my recollection of veterans of the Civil War that we've mentioned many times in the History Bulletin. He refers to his father as a bondsman. and call him a slave. In other words, I was in captivity. But in the long season of that, and then the reconstruction after, and then the long fights for emancipation in what become the United States and Canada and everywhere in the Caribbean and Latin America, the first places we convened to bring our young people into awareness, not only to resist, but to help them understand that a a restored day is coming, I won't say a better day. It's every day we breathe is a day we have life, but a restored day. I mean, in other words, a return to what we were doing before we were interrupted is coming. We must have that, that educational system, including the ones in Africa that, as you say, Dr. Du Bois writes in The Education of Black People in a speech that he gave uh, in this book. He's talking to HBCU, uh, HBCUs uh, around the country at Fisk and Howard and um, Johnson C. Smith. He says, I once saw a perfect system of education. It was in West Africa. It was a tree and everybody was gathered around and there's teaching and learning going on. Well, um, my colleague, my friend, my brother, um, Jelani Favors, has written a book called Shelter in a Time of Storm about historically black colleges and universities. And he starts that tradition in, 19, in 1837 at the Institute for Colored Youth, which becomes Cheney State University. I see why I found it in Philadelphia. And what Jelani calls that 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 system of learning, he refers to it as the second curriculum. He said there's a curriculum in the formal education system in the United States in particular. And we know there are people from all over the world. And this is how it operates everywhere, whether it's by the eyes and the folk in the UK, whether it be now the the afterlives of colonialism, or throughout the continent of Africa, whether it be Asia or India, any place the West has been, they try to organize this formal system of education, which is also about indoctrination and socialization. But Jelani says there was a second curriculum, and that second curriculum was the cultural curriculum, where the ways of knowing, with the movement and memory, where those categories in our Africana study structure, which allow us to pass from generation to generation to generation to generation, the things that we must keep and know about ourselves in our governance structure as we navigate the social structures. And so what Olivia brought into that room last Monday night, and I'm sure there's some people listening now who are saying, well, oh, I got to get a narrative. Yeah, you do. What she brought into the room that night, sitting there on that couch with her mom in Chicago, was a demand. I am here. I am listening. I am creating. She showed us uh, the piece that she made out of the, 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 uh, the empty uh, paper towel roll, and she had put the ears on it and colored the thing. And so she's interested in art. So I pulled right quick up one of the books on West African art and showed her the Ife bronzes. You know, here, here, because in fact, her initial question—oh my God, that question—it didn't make my heart melt. You know, people say, "Oh, you made my heart melt." No, no, that put steel, and she was like, "Why? Why do they talk about Africa the way they talk about Africa? Why when I turn on television, they always saying Africa is poor and people are starving." She wasn't going to accept that because she knows better. But here, this system is. Here's this system George Jackson writes about in blood and and, and my eye is. Here is this system prepared to suck this child and through another generation of black children into this lie about who they are. But this little bright-eyed, brilliant child with that bone in her hair sitting there like, I reject it in my spirit. Now give me the tools to reject it in my mind. Here. And when she saw those pictures, she just like, and then what did she do? She went and got her thing. She said, look, look, this is what I did. I said, see, you're going to we are going to win because we never lost. We can't look at what has happened to us. We're still here, as, as Malefi Asante used to always say. We're the children of those who could not be killed. Because if we could have been killed, we'd be dead. But even life and death takes a different circumstance when a child presents herself to us. I don't know what was going through your mind as you listened to that. Child. I promise you, I, I wanted to get up, but I'm trying to keep my composure. <laughs> oh, muted, it, muted, it, muted probably. Hold on,
0: because I mute myself because I'm also in the chat with the Nubians. Uh, good yeah, morning, yeah. y'all.
1: Let me switch um, out to that
0: too. She asked a question that hurt my soul, mm. right? Because it also is our responsibility to make sure that Olivia and all the Olivias and all of the El- Ellingtons and all of the Kareems and all of all of the young people out there, the the Chloes and the the beautiful, bright eyed uh, children, know. First of all, that that content is not dark. That they don't their first entry point into our poetry should not be Phyllis Wheatley. Also, though uh, the poetry of today, what are we feeding our children? I was thinking um, there's a story that I was going to talk about on my radio show that I decided not to because it's a it's a governance structure conversation we should be having, and I don't want to have this conversation about a rapper who uh, once again has a video with black women on a leash. Yeah, you know, I was like, didn't we do this already? Wasn't that a problem already? You know, it wasn't a problem because we didn't deal with it. We ignored it. Um, and this is beyond the conversation about WAP and all this other stuff. This is about the the lyrics, you know. And I was repeating some lyrics in my head, and I was like, why do I know that bitches ain't ish, but holes and you know? I was like, why? Why is that rolling off my? Why is that rolling off my tongue? You know. Um, and I remember being at the Daily News covering Calvin Butts and C. Dolores Tucker. And I thought, you know, the performative nature of going out with a bulldozer and running over CDs and, and whitewashing billboards. I was like, that y'all are too extra. <laughs> but I see here now. And like, <laughs> Were they extra, you know? And is it our responsibility? Because at the same time as Bitches Ain't Ish But Holes and Tricks, I know that I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill and I'm sitting on Capitol Hill. And I also know about conjunction, junction, what's that function? So somehow right, I was, was
1: heavily influenced by black musicians and the blues. When you when you listen, listen to schoolhouse rock, you're listening to black music. They, and they, I, they, I learned I my
0: timetables over a beat with some song and some <laughs> lyrics mm-hmm. that stuck with me that allowed me to pass tests to get into school. I remember because I didn't, one test had what's a con- what's a conjunction and I was like, Oh, Conjunction John. I started singing the song. I remember Blue it. Yesterday. Oh, and But or Got it. Yep. It's right Get you here.
1: pretty far. You know, my, we talked about it before. My favorite was verb. That's what's happening.
0: Oh, oh that, that looks like that would be your favorite, because he's a superhero. You no, know,
1: I that mean movie. that black music. I yes. can speak a noun and bend it. Give me a noun. Bat, boat rig, and plow. <laughs> and then you see him batting, rowing, plowing. Oh, man. Anyway, no, 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 no. I do my thing in action. Go ahead. Go ahead, oh, Brian. Give me no, no. No. So,
0: uh because I'm gonna get out the way when you start singing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, so, so it made me contemplate, and I know that you teach a class in hip hop, which we don't talk about often. We've had conversations about, you know, Black is King, and of course, sure. we did a whole Tupac sure. thing. Um, but hip hop's one of your bellywicks. That's one of your things. You know, I'm an old man.
1: I'm an old man. So the best I can do is 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 help them with the history. In fact uh one of my kids who is uh um the daughter of of very good friends of mine she's a freshman and by the way i I will not ever i will not stop until this is resolved she's one of the young people who is involved uh in support of the young people in the building right now blackburn um student blackburn university center the so-called the blackburn takeover Uh, what they are i hate to use the word demand Because anytime you say I want to meet with you, Mr. President and your executive cabinet, I want to stay in facilities that are clearly safe and clean and and well. And I want my voice to be heard in the governing board and I want the voice of alumni and faculty to be heard in a formal way. These are um, while, as the president said at the university in a letter he wrote last week. While we may agree to disagree, there is a process. Let me be uh, unequivocally clear as a member of the faculty and as a member of the Howard community now for 20 years. Meet with the students. Not the individual student leaders. Meet with the students, the student body. But anyway, as I was thinking, uh, they are registering for classes now. And I teach the hip hop class in the spring and every semester they ask me and and she asked me a couple days ago, looking for classes, the hip hop class. So what is the hip hop class? What, What do you do? And they always ask me that because you think about it. Well, how do you have a class on hip hop? Well, y'all just play music, y'all watch videos, y'all argue about who you like, who you don't like, and there's a lot of that we do. But what I try to bring to it in my mid-50s is two things, a framework, because it's an Africana studies class. And there are those at Howard. There are many in the country. And of course, I completely ignore them. And it's a badge of honor to do it at Howard because we're still struggling to conceive of the idea of the black university. And that's important to do in black spaces, historically black spaces. But the reason that we have built this space, the reason we are building it, is that we need to be beyond the structural arrangements and formations, even of the university. COVID has changed everything. I think a lot of people don't realize it yet, but that's fine. We don't get caught up in arguing with people. We're too busy trying to identify and pour clean glasses of water. But in this class, the first thing we do is give them a framework. So we go through the Africana Studies framework, social structure, who are Africans to other people. In the context of hip-hop, we talk about everything from the commodification of African cultural production. We talk about everything from the beginning of hip-hop, where the young people who were creating this this, this form, um, this form of African cultural meaning-making uh, that morphed and changed and found its way in through generations of, adaptation and change into the Caribbean where you see deep roots in the Caribbean, particularly the British Caribbean, the English Caribbean, the former English Caribbean. Uh, now, places like Jamaica, of course, when you start talking about ska, when you start talking about Rocksteady, when you start talking about the traditions that came out of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, which is really a cross-fertilization, of course, because you see the migrations and immigrations of Africans throughout the hemisphere. And a lot of those folks are in New York. Or a lot of those folks are in Philly. A lot of those folks are even are in Delaware, like Bob Marley's mother was and Bob Marley for a time in Wilmington and then returning to Jamaica, cross-fertilization in Jamaica, they're getting the recordings of those Africans in the United States, like the Isley brothers and and Little Richard and them, you name it, who were producing music in the 1950s and 60s. They take that began to literally disassemble those uh, those tracks and using their own musical instrumentation and using the technology. I'm thinking about people now like King Tubby or Lee Scratch Perry. They began to reconfigure and lift out of it using those, mean, those cultural meaning making rhythms of Africa, the things they find most important. The beats, for example, the whole notion of extracting out. And then they began to do things like talking over the beats. But while that's going on, the toasting tradition, the long oral traditions of Africa, a similar process is taking place in uh, places like the Bronx in New York. And while that's going on, in other words, you know, you see and then you have an immigrant who becomes kind of symbolic of all of that. He's not the only one. He and his sister, Clive and Cindy Campbell, out of Jamaica, whose parent, whose father, you know, parents are immigrants there in the Bronx, Sedgwick Avenue there in the Bronx where you see them it kind of have gestate and it's a back to school party where uh, people say, this is the founding of hip hop, the, the, the back to school party, because they want to have clothes for school and they're going to raise money by having a back to school party. So, you know, uh, uh, Clive, who we now know as DJ Cool Herk, Hercules, uh, you know, is coming out of a tradition That is going on in the Bronx. His sister, Cindy, who's good with figures and the money and organizing, gets stuff together. They borrow his pop's equipment. And that whole tradition of having the best sound system, which comes out of the Caribbean and is remixed in the Bronx, leads to what eventually becomes this notion of how we think of hip hop. And of course, that is converged in New York and with uh, the, the various groups of social organizations that Africans have created in the second category, governance. Who are we to each other? Well, in a social structure of blight, in a social structure of anti-black and brown violence that includes the city planning of monster architects slash deviants like Robert Moses, uh, not Bob Moses, the great uh, human rights liberationist, but uh, Robert Moses, the city planner in New York. Who conceives of among other things the uh, the uh, the Triborough Expressway and, and 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 the highways that cut through the Bronx so that people who are out in Long Island or people who are out in the suburbs can come in to work in Manhattan and bypass everything and make it down to the commercial center of this criminal enterprise known as the United States in lower Manhattan. But in doing that and carving those pathways through the city, through the island of Manhattan, you destroy, you disrupt those neighborhoods. And again, those immigrants don't stop coming. They keep coming. This was the smoke and deservedly so that Lin-Manuel Miranda got for the film version of In the Heights, you know, because there are a lot of Afro Latinos in that neighborhood, in those neighborhoods, particularly the Bronx and so what you see is in the in the social structure attacking these people in the governance structure they respond they create mutual aid organizations that also bear the great marks of pathology that have been inflicted on them by the lack of resources, by the destruction of their communities. And those things converge into very complicated formations that are neither all good or all bad, but they're trying to hold on for dear life. And of course, these are the young people who create what Jeff Chang and so many others have written about the so-called, you know, gangs, the, 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 uh, what does Chang call it? The seven mile world. Within that formation, you have the Black Spades. Within that formation, you have the uh, Savage Skulls. You have these groups, the gangs of New York. And eventually, what you had gangs of New York, gangs of the Bronx. And gang is is a social structure term. I would use other terms, the governance structure. Well, what do you call yourself? Did you ever ask those Africans who they call themselves? And you can find there there, there are a number of... um documentaries, flying cut sleeves, wild style. You can go kind of look at these young people. And now we're talking about the 1970s and coming into the 1980s. Well, Herc emerges out of that as well. Africa bambata emerges out of that as well. bambata is directly related through the Black Spades to that tradition. But hip hop is forming out of that as a, a set of cultural expressions. You have some of these, uh, these organizations, these formations that cut their own albums, the Ghetto Brothers. As an example, Benji Melendez, you know, you got black Benji, yellow Benji. There's a murder, there's a there's a there's a fight, there's a killing, and then they call a peace treaty. Guess who's in there to try to disrupt the peace treaty from the social structure? The police, or as Tupac would refer to them, the biggest gang of N-words in the city. Meaning what the police got the biggest gang, they're very proud of that, and they don't need you to stop to resolve conflict. You're gonna put them out of a job. So while these young people go ahead, oh uh,
0: so the dads that came in Louisiana, uh, hmm. mm-hmm. you know, and this is all to me, you know, it's like it's converging right now. You know, again, going back to Olivia, I'm like, what are, what are we feeding her? 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 That's the that's the constant question. And what's our responsibility to make sure that she gets a clean glass of water, and every every child gets a clean glass of water. And those fathers coming into that school in Louisiana where they had 27 arrests, like their children fighting. Yeah. Clearly there's something going on there. Yeah, but our, you, children. our children. That's right. But you arrest, you allow them to be taken out in handcuffs. Come on now. So it takes black men coming in no problems. And no they're being praised and lauded, but this... Go ahead, Dr. Carr. I'm sorry. No,
1: no, 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 no. Because, because what you're saying is very important because, and we're going to see this in hip-hop again. We, we, we've we talked about hip-hop and I can I can almost hear. I'm sure you can too, probably. Ureus saying we gotta we gotta have this extended conversation. Mm-hmm. We just need a whole lane for that because I'm looking in the chat, people name checking. Yeah, DJ Red Alert, no question. Oh yeah, we just tap we just tap in a little bit because y'all already know. But um, but that 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 situation and you know what's so oh man wow from from week to week. We all, of course, live in the six days between the day we get to to be together. And then we have office hours now, which is just growing and really just edifying. But we have so many experiences. When that story came to national prominence, the dads, uh, Shreveport, Mm -hmm. Louisiana, I brought the story to my Education in Black America class. And I asked them because this is one of the beautiful things about HBCU. And yes, we have some real challenges at Howard with this Blackburn, Blackburn takeover. And no, they are not unique to Howard. They are universities all over, in fact, Corbias, the uh, kind of criminal enterprise uh, third party provider that is managing many of the dormitories at, at Howard have been sued, successfully sued, I might add, by uh, different entities for providing substandard housing. The US military, um, the University of Georgia, System, So, so Corbius is is, is is a known entity, which is why you don't get into bed with a 40 year contract with them. But again, you know, as Jules Harrell, one of our professors at Howard master teacher often says the university is the faculty and the students. Everybody else is there in support. So I'm not going to abscond- uh, absolve myself of the responsibility as a human being and as an adult. Um of having a say about this but this is the function of administration make better deals uh, you know i don't say do better i mean I, I i'm a little too little i'm a little too experienced for that i know what I you also
0: mean. i think they f- i feel like th- they don't care about the deals and i think that there's gonna wait them out there was a a windstorm they're gonna they're gonna wait the way they did occupy wall street till the weather gets bad and then uh and then the kids won't have any they certainly
1: certainly they, they like certainly that. met but the two things, those young people have deep resolve and they have deep wells of support. That's number one. And if they were to leave tonight, what is done can't be undone. And that's why I say meeting with the students, meeting them with them in a town hall format, meeting with them in a broad format is one step that is necessary because the simple fact of the matter is that what has been done can't be undone. If they were to leave right now while we're in conversation, what can't be undone is the reaction to them as long as they were there. You can't go back now and say, oh, that was a mistake or, um, well, no, I didn't really mean. No, the world has seen. And since the technology is present, you know, everything you say, here come another flood of images, everything. In other words, if they were to leave right now in total, quote unquote, defeat, it can't be defeated because the thing has been exposed now. But the the reason I, I, I bring that up is that. In the context of, of you know what's going on and it's not unique there We think about the fact that our people have real challenges Our people have real challenges and while I was in class I brought up the, the what, what We just brought up these brothers in Shreveport at this high school who said This violence has to cease because the enemy and I'm going to call them Our enemies because they are uh, I'm talking about the police law enforcement And if you're not our enemies, then please uh, identify yourself and do something to stop these other people who are our enemies. Because every time a fight break out, here come all the damn police and you start leading these children off. And yes, they are children. Because if they were 15, 16, 17 year old white boys fighting, you would treat them like your children. But these are 15, 16, 17 year old black kids, which means they are not human. No humans involved to again, quote the. The. the Caribbean philosopher, um, Sylvia Winter, Um, the Jamaican-Cuban philosopher, Sylvia Winter. But these men intervened and one of the blessings, and as I said, all universities have problems, HBCUs have the same problems and also a little different. One of the beautiful things though about HBCUs and the reason that I work at one is because whenever we convene, you have the African world there. So I already knew what was gonna happen. I already knew what was going to happen. Just like a freshman seminar on a Tuesday night, I play music before we start our 50-minute class, and we're reading uh, the, the book uh, um, here. The book "Quality Education as a Constitutional Right." That's what that's the book we picked this year for these 1,800 freshmen at Howard to read in the College of Arts and Sciences. We've been doing this now for about 12 or 13 years. A book we do every every fall on our on our theme. So I play a little music at the beginning, and because we're now in the chapter, the first chapter of the book, we we do a lot of preliminary stuff in the next three weeks. We're going directly into the book because we're in the first chapter that writes about the Baltimore Algebra Project. I put some, you know, so I played uh, our sister Moni Love, Moni in the Middle, hip-hop, you know, and he's before these children, but, you know, it resonates. Where's me. she at? Where's she at? In the middle. Where that at? In the middle. Go, Mo, Mo. Who is she? Moni in the middle, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? That and Ladies First, of course, just signature moments. These endure. Right, that we what people say, pan-Africanism. I ain't no pan-Africanist. I'm, you know, you're not a pan-Africanist? No, but you like ladies first, huh? Yeah, like ooh, ladies first. Didn't you hear the lyrics? Chilling on the scene with my European partner. Why? Because Moni Love is from the UK, the Caribbean, by the way, the UK talking about you ain't no pan-Africanist. Just be quiet, slow down and listen. Of course, you're a pan-Africanist, but don't don't know you anyway. So I played, you know, uh Moni in the middle, followed up by Antonio Hardy, of course, the man we know as Big Daddy Kane, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, uh, and then after that, but with well, Big Daddy Kane, I played from, of course, Patterson, New Jersey. Well, born in, born in Georgia, but raised in Patterson, New Jersey, became the principal, of course, of East Side High, uh, the great Joe Clark, who just made transition in December 2020. Lean on me, right? You know, <laughs> you know. Well, can we please eliminate the drug situation? <laughs> Getting education Big Daddy Kane is laying it out You ever need help? Lean on me right? And then the last one I played of course Nazir Jones, I know I can And so we got into class And in the chat, we were on Zoom We had 1,800 kids in this class In the chat They started talking About And one About learning this music as children Because they weren't around like we were When these things debuted You know, you're talking about Kane? you're talking about Moni, you're talking about Nas. This is like 1990, 1989, you know, in the case of I Know I Can, maybe 2002 or something like that, you know. So, but in the chat, these young people, mostly 17, 18-year-olds, there's a couple of 16-year-olds in there as well, early admits, they're writing about how, oh, yeah, my parents used to play this music for us. And this one girl in the chat asked to unmute herself. She had to come over. I said, what? She said, my dad... And mother met at Eastside High. They went to Eastside. Every morning before class, before I went to school, my daddy would play that song. Wow. I'm like, are you serious? And then another child said, my dad played, I know I can. In fact, I know I can be what I want to be. This girl then said she made that her um, yearbook quote. Now, she wasn't even around when this song debuted. But because of the parents, it's passed on. It's passed on. It's passed on. So anyway, that, that, I bring that up because in, the, in my Education in Black America class, a little earlier I showed them the clip, the, 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 the television uh, story, the story they did, the news story in Shreveport. Lo and behold, one of the students is from Shreveport. Knew the school. Didn't go to high school, but knew the school. And then we pulled up the statistics. You know, there are national databases. So we're looking at the racial composition. I think that school has maybe about 20% white. uh, It's majority black. But it's very interesting. We started doing it, we did the numbers in terms of there's like maybe 1300 students in the schools. So, it so this whole spotlight is on a couple of dozen young people. And what we never know, applying our Africana States framework in the governance structure is what is the source of the violence? What's going on? And then as we're watching the report, I don't know if we saw the same report. Bro. Remember though, here come this white man who's got the brother sitting in the library. Uh, let me start. Uh, first of all, none of you have any training or counseling or- any degrees in counseling? <laughs> and then they're just sitting there, the brothers, about six, seven of them. No. Well, so, so, and of course, the white man is asking this not to critique them, but to show that they are concerned men and concerned fathers, which is their authority. He says, So, so what qualifies you? And they say, Well, we're dads. And so you go on, but we pause there. And I said, What do y'all think about that? Young people immediately picked up on what I picked on using an Africana studies framework. That's a social structure framing. They are fathers, just like you, chief, if you're lucky. So when you start with, well, I had none of you have degrees, <laughs> do you? <laughs> what you're automatically doing, George Jackson and blood in my eye brings this up. You're creating a hierarchy. Who gives you the right to come in here and ask them any of them questions? And so then we start, but then he started, he interviews some of the young people in the school. And then, remember the black girl looks at him and she said, and, and, and he asked her, the white reporter says, this dude, he's like, and again, I'm not critis- criticizing him because he's coming from his, his way of knowing. I ain't mad at him. He's come from the social structure though. Well, I'm mad at us if we, if, we, if we take that as the way we should be looking. It's not the same lens. We don't have the same lens and this is the purpose of Africana Studies to identify the lenses that we have to create. So he asked this young girl, he says, um, so uh, why, uh, why do you all just kind of, you know, why do y'all like having them around? And why, why do you think the violence has, has kind of subsided, mind you. It's like thirteen hundred students in the school, and you talking about twenty six, and we don't even know the circumstances that led to the twenty six over the course of the weeks where the violence occurred. So this is a useless, meaningless question. But when you say the violence, as if thirteen hundred people meet up at school to beat up each other each every day, and you filled up all the jails with them. Come on now. But it's all good. He asked this young girl, and she's sitting there, and she said, and then it was funny because the the wisdom in her response remind me a little Olivia. Olivia, eight years old, but she had that old woman's soul as that youthful. Con- she sitting. I'm looking at her and I'm saying, this child is looking at us with the eyes and the spirit of a child and the eyes and the spirit of a grandmother at the same time. This is the power <laughs> in our way of knowing. So this girl, I've met, she's probably 15, 16 years old. He asked her, well, wh- why is the violence subsided? She said, you ever heard the look? <laughs> Oh, And just in the way she did it, the serious moment where she was like, "Are you serious right now?" Oh, you don't know the way of knowing." Then she just laughed him off. And, but, but for, that, for that split second, you ever, you ever heard the look. <laughs> you know, when she came out of it into the laugh, she said, "I'm gonna let you go." But for that moment, she grabbed him up in his soul and said, "You don't know who we are, do you? We respect our elders." We respect these brothers, sit, stand out here. And mind you, now, it ain't like many of those cats could break up a fight. The leader of the guy, the guy's, kind of, <laughs> look at this guy like, man, the only reason these cats are, are respecting them is because they love them. They know these men are here to love them. And you see a little clip like one of them, uh, one of the clips, one of the, one of the brothers has this young cat's uh, cell phone with his earphones in. He said, let me see that, man. What kind of pictures? And the kid is laughing. I'm saying, you can't take. No young boy's cell phone. I say young boy like I was in Philly. You can't take no young man's cell phone and him not bristle unless he trusts you. And he trusts you because he knows that you love him. You're here out of love. And that led to, we had about a 30 minute conversation about the nature of governance in that formation. And what we arrived at was a consensus. The consensus was as important as it is to have those brothers there. What they're doing is not new. It's new in terms of how it has to be applied now, but this is the way that we have formations. And they are only one component of what should be the ultimate uh, destination, which is let's have some moms. What would it look like if there were a community? What would it look like if there were 20 or 10, five women, five men, 20, 10 women, 10 men? Various ages. And it was moms and dads. Because, again, even in that context, the social structure wants to make it look like this is male violence. No. What they're looking for is loving adults. I, I was going to say, kids
0: why aren't the teachers presenting that function or providing that function? Because I know when I was coming up at my the black school that I went to before I went to Catholic school, the, all of the teachers and the principal could have gathered up any one of us with that same look. I remember Mrs. Johnson. Mrs. Johnson would (laughs) fold her hands and just look because I was a disruptive child. (laughs) And the discomfort would just melt me in my, I would just, okay, she didn't have to say a word because there was an understanding. The problem in our school system is that we don't have enough people who are teaching our children who love our children. That's right. You know, they're, they're doing it as a service or a duty or as a paycheck but they're not coming in there out of love. In every space where we have teachers who do not have that spirit of love in the classroom, our children will fail.
1: Oh my gosh, we are really trying to tie these things together. I promise you. In fact, I have to pause here because I was supposed to be with my Freedom School students once a month on Monday evenings. Philadelphia Freedom Schools does in Mbangi. Mbangi, of course, the uh, West Central Africa, Congo World, means a house without rooms it's a convening and they've reconfigured it now because of covid to be a national and international meeting. so any teenager you know we want our teenagers involved in this and, and they have decided now to go live we're going to do in the afternoons but in order to accommodate other time zones particularly the west coast in the united states they do it at 7 p.m. And so the initial one was supposed to be this past Monday. So that's why, Nubians, when you got the message that we were not going to have office hours last uh, Monday is because I could just completely forgotten. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God, is this the first one? OK, now it's going to be November, the end of November. I think the 22nd is the date. But at any rate, the point is they moved it. And so then we could have office hours like we regularly will on, and do on Monday nights. And so coming in there, you know, we got it together. You scrambled the team immediately, you know, put them back in action. Thank you. Thank you, Urias and Carl and, you know, Karen. You say, okay, let's, okay, we're back on. Let's do it. That's all ancestral because had we not done it, Olivia wouldn't have opened that week for us. Now, we may have seen her next week or even in here, but I'm saying at this moment, but she opened that week and that has framed the rest of the week. That Tuesday night, I was with my friends and colleagues from the National Museum of African American History and Culture for the uh, debut of their book make good the promises which i talked about last week and if you get to the museum the exhibit um the new reconstruction exhibit it is powerful so my very my dear friend kinshasa uh holman conwell who is the deputy director of the african american museum the, the museum of african american history and culture uh was is the co-editor also with my friend paul, paul gardulo who is the curator on history and also uh the center for the study of global slavery at the museum and they had a couple of of the um the authors of the chapters in the book um a good sister out of a detroit now, wayne state university uh, my friend kadada williams who does some very important work she wrote the, the chapter on violence in the book so she did i oh mean guys she pulled out these narratives of africans who suffered during reconstruction in georgia um i think about the Childers family who lost their 10 year old daughter because she was whipped literally to death and then uh, the families who trying to vote, and I mean, all the violence. And I told them, you know, I don't forgive any of that stuff. You know, we're human, we go through the world together. But see, when you when you put primary documents like this together and you hear the voices of black folk, anyway, I won't get down that road, we can talk about that. We got all the time in the world to do that. Maybe we talk about that in office hours next week. But, um, and then my friend Hassan Jeffries, uh, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who was at Ohio State University, went to Morehouse undergrad. Dr. Jeffries did the chapter on faith. And I said, you know, as I and I was the moderator, so I'm asking them questions. And I got to uh, Hassan. I was like, brother, in the words of the great Saginaw, Michi- Michigan's great Stephen Morris, the man we know as Stevie Wonder and superstition. When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. So when you write in a whole chapter on belief and faith, I think about the quote that you use from W.E.B. Du Bois. He said we must separate fact from desire. I said, so where are we actually going with this notion of reconstructing? something and how do we even think about something that has always been aspirational when it conflicts with our experiences the fact of our experiences and he and he gave a brilliant you know kind of meditation on the nature of faith the nature of belief and you know taking out these confederate monuments the united dollars of confederacy so it was a brilliant conversation excellent conversation but i was wiped because this is after you know four classes and a freshman seminar so i went to the thing immediately at seven o'clock we did that we were off i was just done the next day Wednesday, I had class again, another section of freshman seminar, my law school class at night. We were talking about voting rights, this, 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 this class. We're looking at the history of voting rights, the major cases, statutes, the Voting Rights Act of 65, all the stuff that's come since, you know, Citizens United in 2010, Shelby County versus Holder in 2012. Brilliant students from all over the country, some of them outside the country who are in, in this class now at Howard Law School. And so all this momentum is building. And then Thursday. I came back for my next round of undergraduate classes, Education in Black America again. And this is how it ties to uh, the Shreveport piece. We had talked about that. And we had gone through that analysis and we couldn't find the data on the racial makeup of the teachers. In in the profiles, we we're able to identify from the various databases we accessed. And of course, I'm sharing my screen, so I'm looking stuff up as we're going through. But we're reading that book. We're finishing up the book of The Lost Education of Horace Tate, Vanessa Walker's book that we've talked about many times. And we're at the end of the book where the American Teachers Association merges with the National Education Association, NEA. And the Black school teachers who come out of segregation are debating the utility, the value, and the function of merger. And they are increasingly concerned that merging with this white organization will result in them losing not only the structural integrity of the ATA, the American Teachers Association, the black organization that has its roots in the 19th century coming out of enslavement, but that Integration, this is just after Brown versus the Board of Education, will lead to the undermining of the type of values that you just described, Professor Hunter, that I see coming up in the chat that I experienced myself in terms of Black teachers who cared and loved for us and who could, with a look or with a a word, get us back in the line when we were being what children are. Children. And when We started talking about as they had read the book and they're starting sharing their their perspectives on what had been read, what they read. Uh, Martin Luther King spoke to the Georgia Teachers and Education Association in Atlanta. This would have been around 1967, 66, 67. And he says integration without power is not integration. He said, I am. In fact, let me just go to the quote because I don't want to misquote Martin Luther King. This is the Martin Luther King that it, we know in the governance structure, but that the social structure works. And I don't want to congratulate I always say this and I'm not being facetious. I want to congratulate the social structure on this uh, because, you know, they are very clear that we are never to be seen as fully human, nor can we. Because to be human means to be white. And. People might say, well, that's not true. No, it isn't true. Except it is true in the social structure. And you know how we act as if it's true? By conforming to it. So we say, oh, Martin Luther King was, you know, an integrationist. Hold on. This is what he says. He says that, um, hold on, here's Martin. Let me see. Let me get the Martin Luther King quote. Um, here we go. Here we go. Says that, um, He was vintage Reverend King on that evening as he began his talk, his his voice gradually ascending to the elevated punctuated staccato phrasing recognized the world over. It's 1967, he's in Atlanta, speaking to the Georgia Teachers and Educators Association. But the message Reverend King delivered about black education and black educators was a message America missed. By that meaning the social structure, that's what really Vanessa Siddle Walker is saying. He and other blacks were done with segregation Henceforth and forevermore, Reverend King proclaimed to the audience of black educators, no one among them wanted to return to second class citizenship. However, Reverend King continued, repeating the words these educators had heard Dr. Tate, Dr. Horace Tate, who was the president of the GTEA, high school principal fired from one job because he was advocating for black people, run out of town on the other job at another uh, um, 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 high school in Griffin, Georgia. He was at Greensboro first. They got him out the paint there. He was in Griffin, Georgia. They got him and his wife, Miss Virginia Tate, out of the paint there. She just made transition this year in her mid 90s. Uh, he went to University of Kentucky, got a Ph.D., the first black to do that, came back to the state, kept working. Eventually uh, ran for office, city council, ran for mayor of Atlanta, in fact. But Dr. Kate had been saying, Reverend King says something Dr. Kate had been saying numerous times at state and regional meetings, integration must be two-way, a genuine integration. Here's the quote from King. Quote, integration doesn't mean the liquidation of everything started and developed by Negroes, King went on. The audience applauded. Now, the audience applauded. King says, now there are too many Americans, Reverend King enunciated emphatically, Whites and Negroes who think of integration merely in aesthetic and romantic terms. All right, all you first Negro, only Negro in the picture, only Negro in the college bulletin, only Negro on the team, only Negro in the band, only Negro who to adorn white structures. Whites and Negroes who think of integration merely in aesthetic and romantic terms while you just add a little, where you just add a little color to a still predominantly white controlled power structure. Damn, he sounds like George Jackson. All right, hold on a second. We must see, this is Dr. King, we must see integration in political terms where there is shared power. And I am not one that will integrate myself out of power. Vanessa Walker writes, the audience burst into more applause as Reverend King spoke directly to educators' longstanding concerns, the ones overshadowed in the public press by a civil rights movement that imagined black educators as passive observers. King goes on and says, we have got to see that integration is genuine." integration, where there is shared power. Reverend King knew that educators confronted just such a crisis in school integration and that they were calling for equality in myriad domains of school integration with all their might. He understood that black educators were at that very moment for being forced to pay the penalty for their decades of seeking equality of opportunity for black children. Finally, Dr. King says, quote, I think you are on sound ground in saying that this integration process must not mean Negro annihilation. And it is just as important to have Negro principals at formerly all white schools as it is to have white principals at formerly all Negro schools. I wanna stress this point because it's very important. Integration must lead us to a point where we share in the power that all of our society will produce. Now, as we were reading that, the young people are saying, that teacher you had, that teacher many people in the chat had, was an outlier. That black woman, that black man, Jeannie Scott, at Hillsborough High School in Nashville, when I was a sophomore in high school and the Atlanta child murders were going on and she would wear her ribbon to, clap, to work every day. And I heard two children, white child say, why she got that ribbon on? And I heard a black girl say, because she cares about her children and shut the whole conversation down. Miss Scott, whose granddaughter is now Howard. I mean, that's how many years ago that was. But my point I'm raising is this, the what they found out in integration, and this is what happened. This is what Vanessa Walker's book and many others track. When they merged and integrated, the best black teachers were cherry-picked and taken to white spaces. Many of the other black teachers who were also good were taken and dismissed. They lost their careers. In places like Arkansas and Virginia, they literally closed schools for a year. And white people opened Private schools sent their children to school for no disruption in education, while black children had no choice because they had shut the schools down. And if they could scramble and put something together. They tried, but they had a—they call it the lost year in Arkansas. Little Rock Nine, yeah, the documentary—that's great. Little Rock Nine, civil rights—they suffered, and now we're gonna honor them. Okay, what happened in 1958? That was 1957. What happened in 1958? Oh, well, you know. Uh, Father's closed the schools for a year, but we want to go back to when they was getting spit on and shit. Because see, that's the thing we want y'all to do. We need you to play a a, a nice accessory, like a nice pair of earrings, or this is a lovely bracelet. Don't you love this bracelet? This is the Rosa Parks bracelet. Don't you love this ass whipping bracelet? This is the John Lewis Selma. But don't you love these matching earrings? This is the Emmett Till earrings. And and really, it was a tragedy. But but look how much we've grown. No, no, no more accessories. What happened in 1958? In 1958, they closed all the schools in Arkansas. That meant that Horace Mann was, was closed. That's the school that Little Rod Nine I came from, that in Dunbar. All them schools was closed. Well then, so white people lost too. We all suffered. No, white people started academies. And then y'all laid in wait in the social structure for decades until you could figure out a way to siphon my tax money into those private schools. Yeah, y'all call it vouchers. In other words, this criminal enterprise, y'all don't never want, Dr. King told you, we Do not integrate yourself out of power. Those teachers looked at that and were like, we don't want to integrate ourselves out of power. And as they integrate, that's where I'm going with it, Thinking about Shreveport, thinking about those men, wishing there were some women there, realizing, yeah, the teachers, as y'all saying in the in, in chat right now, in, in, in Nubia, the teachers should be serving that function. Realizing that the teachers there come out of a tradition, come out of a history, a recent post-Brown versus Board of Education history, where the role of teachers has been diminished in our governance structure because we've allowed it to be, and it is look, looks more like this criminal enterprise social structure that has never valued education for everybody. And that is willing to sacrifice education for everybody if it means keeping the people who are at the bottom of this hierarchy at the bottom of the hierarchy. So they've destroyed. They never had a great education system to begin with. And they've only savaged it. The more those of us who they consider to be less than them, less than humans, no humans involved, have been integrated. So now you end up in a situation where. After integration, many of these teachers lost their jobs and the Black ones that were in had to swim in a sea of whiteness and many Black students, some of y'all in this room, came to these schools expecting wanting teachers to help you, encountering hostile teachers or teachers who didn't think you were human, alongside teachers who did think you were human, including some of those Black teachers, and so we all cluster around those black teachers that we had, or these beloved other teachers who saw our humanity and development, but it's a battleground, every day in education. So as we're having this conversation, and we talk about the fact that after the merger, you see black teachers dismissed, and then white teachers get those jobs, and they practicing looking to get to a better school, looking to get to a better school. And you see the the decline. And so here we are in 2021, the schools are more segregated now nationwide than they were after Brown versus Board of Education, except now you've decimated the black teacher force, which is why my friends at the Center for Black Educator Development, Sharif El-Mekki, uh, I do a Thursday afternoon thing. Uh, we do we go live, Shana Terrell talking about building this black educator pipeline, the whole process where we have Philadelphia Freedom Schools, we know Ashere Hines and Stephanie Joy Tisdale, and you know, you know, the Mbongis we have. We're trying to rebuild the Black teacher pipeline, create more black teachers, but teaching has been decimated in terms of the public esteem in terms of evaluation and you got a lot of people in the classroom who shouldn't be in the classroom they are looking for a job and then they and enc- they want to help but then they come in there and they get so defeated that they burn out all this is going on and then i turn to the legacy with these young people in this education in black america class and as you all have seen many times i have the histories because one of the things that the american teachers association when they merged with the national education association they told them one of the conditions was that we have to write the histories. We have to write the histories of our association. And this is an interesting book. This is called the National Education Association and the Black Teacher. This book is by uh, Michael John Schultz Jr., University of Miami Press. It's an important book, but this book right here, not as important as this, these books. And I'm not going to show all you all the show you all these books, I'm just going to show you a couple of them because we've talked about them many times. And I think I'm going to have to every time we talk about one of these subjects, I realize this is a year long course in itself. So these are just like you say, breadcrumbs the various state histories Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, um, North Carolina, the Palmetto Association out of South Carolina. Remember, we talked about it with Mike Harriet one time. But with these young people in my education in Black America class on Thursday, I said, let's start with the history of the American Teachers Association. This is Thelma Perry, Professor Thelma Perry, who was in Washington, D.C. for many years. And I tracked this book down from Cheney, Washington, the library of Eastern Washington University. They deaccessioned it. They threw it out of their library. So I bought it very cheaply years ago. It came out of their library. You know why? Because still got the library card. In fact, there's a book that I have that, that it's like the hist- it's called The History of Library Cards. Remember you they used to have these library cards? We all, mm-hmm. read, right? And it's fascinating because, of course, when you see a library card, you see who checked the book out, when they checked it out. And I said, I want y'all to look at something, y'all. Look at this. Look at this library card. I said, look at all the people that checked it out and read and understood. Wait. what? what? Nobody. <laughs> right. Now, watch this. In the library at Eastern Washington, look where the subdivision was. It was property of the black education program. So that tells me one of two things. It wasn't no black people up there, maybe two or three that had a black education program. And even if it was one, two or three, none of y'all in the program checked it out. This history is the history of those black teachers. That's Thelma Perry right there. She worked for the, um, the Cargy Witness Association she was an associate editor of the Negro History Bulletin. She taught an associate professorial lecturer at George Washington University. She was a member of the District of Columbia Bar. She had a J.D. She had taught at, in North Carolina, in Oklahoma. I mean, just I mean, she taught at Johnson C. Smith. That was her first professional position. So as I'm, I'm telling these young people, I'm listening to them say, "How come I didn't know about Thelma Perry?" I said, oh, don't worry, we about to." Clear. And this is what I did for about five minutes, and I'm not going to repeat that now but I am gonna just give y'all a little bit of how that felt for them. I went through each of the states, South Carolina, Louisiana, Florida, uh, Arkansas. I mean, you name it, all the Southern states, right? Texas. And I read the dedications to them. This is the one from South Carolina. This is brother John Potts black teacher. Don't y'all think about this in the context of these black men. They got to go up here and calm these young people down because the teachers can't do it because they ain't the love that has been established there. I'm, I'm going out on a limb, but not really because why they knuck if you buck when it's just the teachers and then these brothers show up and everything calm down. Okay, they're telling y'all something. This is coming from the government structure. This is what the brother Potts writes about the Palmetto, which is South Carolina's black teachers association. Now, mind you, they made the NEA pay for the histories. That was part of the merger deal we not merging with y'all and lose our history. We know how y'all are. Y'all have us in here and the only history you'll have with. These remarkable Negroes came and joined us and uh, they had on nice suits and dresses and they're very respectable. <laughs> we're going to write our histories and you're going to pay for it. And we pick the scholars to write the histories and they're going to be mostly teachers. The Florida joint, oh my God. The history of the Florida joint was co-author Gilbert Porter and uh, Brother Lidell Nayland. These cats were from Florida A&M. And teachers, they wrote the history here, the dedication in Florida. What good is the
0: history if none of us are reading it?
1: Well, that's why we have Narrative Nubia. Thank you very much, Professor Hunter, for creating this space. And this is why we're all here, because as long as it's here, we can remember. That's what we're doing. And those of you on YouTube watching this saying, Damn, how do I join? Well, you better come on, get with us, because guess what? Oh, I'm sorry, we should probably, who was at the head of hip hop song? Drop that zero, get with this hero. <laughs> in other words, lead a social structure and come on into the government structure. Look at this dedication to the many black teachers of Florida who joined together in the Florida State Teachers Association in an effort to improve the overall quality of education in the state. That was that dedication. Let's go to the Palmetto, this is South Carolina, my man Potts. John Potts said to the founders, and former members of the Palmetto Education Association who did so much with so little for so many. May we always remember their unselfish and devoted services to the teaching profession and to the progress and development of the people of South Carolina. And so we went state by state. Some people dedicated it to, look, this Louisiana, this Ernest Middleton, to my mother, Viola P. Middleton, to the memory of my father and to all black teachers who kept the torch of knowledge burning in the minds of boys and girls throughout Louisiana. By the time I got through these dedications, some of these kids was misty-eyed and they kept saying, how do we not, how do, I said, just pause for a minute. These are my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great, these are your grandparents and great-grandparents. When they built a bulwark, the history of the social structure will have you think they was out there in rags with an oil lamp in a building with holes all in the wall, teaching children their letters, and maybe two or three of them were. But these women and men that you've been reading about, they were the bridge. And here we are in 2021. You want to know what happened to education? We started listening to the social structure, and so now you got to come back and relight the torch. And so, as those brothers come into Shreveport, they are coming in to intervene, but it can't stop with that. Now we want to know why y'all can't do this. And so while a man is sitting there the reporter like, none of you have degrees. (laughs) No, no, we don't have degrees. And guess what? We have to paint now. This interview is over because we're getting ready to conduct professional development for the teachers. And no, we don't have a grant from Uh, the Lumina Foundation or the Ford Foundation. No, we do not have a MacArthur Genius Grant. In other words, no, we are not the curated pets of white translation. We are people who have the expertise of coming from a a governance structure. And if you want to engage with our children, you will sit and listen and then you will model and we are going to assess your effectiveness. Call it professional development, call it whatever you want cut us the check to pay us, but what we're not going to do anymore is come in here as junior partners in the development of our children. This is a very different paradigm. And every teacher educator out there who would disagree with me, I invite you in the newbie and maybe we'll have a special class where we can have the conversation because I damn sure after 30 plus years of teaching K-12 and college, want to hear what you have to say that could anyway argue with that. I really want to hear that because If it's better, then let's adopt it. If it needs to be blended, let's adopt it. But what we must do is change it to the governance structure. Now, what does all that have to do with hip-hop? Well, well, that's easy. That's easy. Because what is hip-hop? Now we talk about our Africana Studies framework. And we have to talk about it in the context of cultural meaning-making and movement and memory. Before, though, we do that, you said it a few minutes ago, Prof, but I want, you know, at this moment, as as we kind of pivot and and do the transition, so we talk a little bit about hip-hop today in this context. Again, what animated your mind to then say, you know what? We should probably explore this. Was an article you saw?
0: Yeah, I mean it was uh an article about I don't even want to say his name because he's a Dominican uh rapper who I never heard of before, who apparently you know, and it just it reminded me of Snoop, you know, coming onto that stage with women on leashes. And why was that acceptable? Why was it acceptable for Ludacris to skeet on us? Why
1: was you know, so I'm just like right. What's, looking the- at Olivia, like, What's his name? A uh, Soldier Boy, yeah.
0: I'm like Olivia deserves better, and and I don't want to be you know uh, Dolores see C. Tuck, C. Dolores Tucker, or Calvin Butts, but I you know at some point we have to bear responsibility for the hypocrisy that we allow our children to digest on a regular basis, and I don't know how we explain to them why that's okay, but yet we want them to live these you know these kind of lives. We don't want that for them, but yet we accept all of this in our music, and I uh, you know it's not about you know the sanity you know coming in with the. Sanitizing everything, but at some point we're gonna to have to start asking ourselves the question about whether uh this hypocrisy that we live in on a daily basis is okay and who's driving it. Because you know, when hip hop was, you know, at its when you talked about cool herc and even broken glass everywhere, the message, even that was storytelling and poetry in a way that we could all, yeah, I'm living this experience and it's real, but it's not we're not basking in it, we're not glorifying it or celebrating it. And KRS-One, we just, you know, Big Daddy Kane and and Public Enemy. Yes, this was discussions about what was happening. But at some point, the social structure got a hold of it. And they're feeding our children poison every day to the point that three, four, five-year-olds know lyrics that are debaucherous more than they know their ABCs. And that should be a problem. And for those dads on duty to show up in a school tells you that there's something else going on in our community that we must put at the forefront. For the olivias of the world
1: for the ellingtons of the world
0: you know yes. um and that's our responsibility
1: mm-hmm. so
0: that's um, right it is
1: and and, and we see in hip-hop i mean when you mentioned c Dolores tucker i mean i knew c Dolores tucker not well but she's from philly before. oh i
0: didn't know that okay. yeah, didn't and know she that.
1: passed by her house every day going down the drive uh going up to germantown i mean she and her husband right there um she was a an apprentice of course, like many others, including Dorothy Height, you know Mary McLeod Bethune, and them. I mean, she's in that whole Negro women's formations. You know, saying <laughs> the colored nationalization, the colored women. You know, very important. Um, the first black woman Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, uh, very heavily involved in politics, and of course, of a generation that would be like your mama, mama. It's just certain stuff we're not going to put up with. I mean, she come from that, you know. And so I think about, talk about KRS. Remember KRS and Channel Live had a song uh, called Free Mumia. And had the lyric go, I met up with a girl named Dolores, a, a prankster. <laughs> she said, I MC. You said, you're a gangster. But she was caught up. She hit the floor like a break dance. Wrapped her up in my arms in a b-boy stance. Recognize, moms, I'm one of your sons. I'm hip hop in the form of Channel Live and KRS-One. And so it goes on and and she says, you know, she said, I like it, that's why I jock it. Then I said, you only on my back because I feel brother's pockets. Got them driving Benzes, Jeeps and Rolls Royces, attacking me, we'll leave the youth with no voices. So she goes on, like they're having a dialogue in the hip hop song, KRS-One Channel Live with Dolores Tucker say, we we got a misunderstanding. You don't understand. And then the, the chorus is, Uh, KRS comes in and says, Warner, Electra, Atlantic equals Wea. Instead of fighting them, why don't you go free Mumia? (laughs) In other words, instead of getting wrapped up with these record companies who are using the steamrolling and all this to turn around and say, let's create intergenerational intergenerational conflict and now go buy all this damn music. And you know that most of the people buying hip-hop are not Black. Come on. Tell and me. those two or three of you who have peeked in here on YouTube and decide because y'all like the hate watch, you know, we're not really thinking about y'all. But I'll pause here to say that if you are in here, we know what you're going to do tonight. We know what you're going to do tomorrow. <laughs> you know, the Halloween parties where you wear the black face, where you dress up like Native Americans, where you put on the cat suits in your fetish fantasies because we know the origins of Halloween. Maybe we'll say that at the end. We know what you're going to do. And we know that at those parties, you're going to have music on as you have your athletic jerseys with Kaepernick's name on it turned backward and your hats turned on backward and a shade of brown or even black makeup and your garbage bags on and your hoop earrings on and you get drunk on the liquor that black people don't drink. And you start your rebel yelling at your sorority and fraternity house. Don't tell me that you're not doing it because I went to Temple. I went to Ohio State, and I'm telling you what I saw my own eyes. There's no need to lie about it. This would be your parents' generation, but we know you're doing it too at Auburn. We know you're doing it too at Penn State. We know you're doing it too in Tuscaloosa at the University of Alabama. All those places, in other words, where you've just left the stadium cheering for those Black men whose bodies you only love when they are either running up and down the field or clandestinely when nobody is looking on top or underneath you. We know that at these Halloween parties... You'll be engaged in the fetish play of blackness that allows you to express what you believe is the primal soul of blackness by doing what the uh, scholars of minstrelsy call blacking up. We know what you're going to be doing and we know the whole time that you're doing it, you're going to have playing in the background, Boozy. We know that you're going to have playing in the background, Master P and Snoop. We know in the background that you will actually be saying, bitches ain't but holding tricks. Get the fuck out after you're done. Then I went to the car, make a quick run. I once knew a bitch named Eric Wright. We used to roll around and put the hose at night. Tighten them up put the gangster beats. Because if you look at the song, Bitches Ain't Ish, it's really an attack on Eric Wright. And easy in them, dealing with patriarchy. A patriarchal, basically saying, you're not a man. Bitches name, who is the bitch you talking about? I'm talking about Eric Wright. I once knew a bitch named Eric Wright. Oh, but you know what resonates? is not this small-minded, Andre. Small-minded, small-minded Calvin. Small-minded, narrow, dehumanizing characterization of men as women. Not even women, but bitches. But what resonates is you somehow think being a woman is less than being a man. And you got that whole idea from white people. In other words, blackface minstrelsy is one thing where white people blacking up so they can pretend to be black at a Halloween party because it just lets them be free. It's quite another thing for a natural born African to become a minstrel of himself. And then turn around and put a dog collar and chains on somebody that could be his sister, his wife, his mother, his daughter, his niece, or himself. Cause we ain't gonna get into this gender uh, trap. And then walk around on a stage. You want to know why we see our brother Snoop with Kevin Hart reporting on the Olympics? You know why we want to? Why well, we see him with Martha Stewart making cookies? because that's the acceptable trope for blackness or passing out beers on the beach in the party, because that's the acceptable conversation when it comes to what is a black man, because there are no humans involved. So we've given them the license. And as Karras one and channel live said in free Mumia, when they talking to, uh, to Dolores we want with some of your sons if you don't want us doing this if we don't need to do this help us do better but I'm gonna tie that together in terms of the history of hip-hop in a second but I just wanted to to, to raise that in this context because what bothered you about that story certainly bothers me because you know the guy's like well I apologize if I offended anyone and I'm like okay (laughs) that's the non-apology apology in other words you crazy the gaslight, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's like you know saying, you know, I know y'all sleeping outside this building, but uh really, this is on you. Huh? <laughs> what? Yeah, I know this protest. This protest is different than the other protests. You mean the other protests where they took over buildings? Those were legitimate protests. This is not legitimate because we in the building. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm the fool if I listen to that and act like it makes sense. But I know that the, that's not even the point. The point is there's a political. Thing that you're trying to be after, and after, and, and what we see in hip hop then is that the social structure, who we are to other people, figured out this is the next iteration of black creativity. Let us figure out how we can make profit off it. So they began to pick and curate winners and losers. And with the technology and the shifts in technology now, it became simple. And it took Nick Cannon walking my hip hop class through it. Well, his he was actually in the class, but you know, you got a guy like Nick Cannon as a student and in the class. Every day we would go to class, I'm like, Nick, we're going to cover this history and then you're going to talk. Why? Because I'm not going to allow these young people to not have the full benefit of you being a student at Howard. Because what we're talking about, what we're studying, what we're examining is very important as a framework. And your physical presence here allows us to see how this continues to echo today in your own experiences. And I'll never forget the afternoon where Nick walked everybody through the whole process of curation, the algorithms, how now you just get rid of all the A&R units in uh, in companies. Why? Because everybody's sitting in their pajamas, uploading TikTok, uploading videos, and all they do is sit back and see what pops and say, we'll pick you, we'll take you, we'll sign you to a contract, take off. And then while, while you blowing up on this hit, we've already thrown you in the trash. Now we're picking you, we're picking you, we're picking you. And so one hit wonders, yeah, that's the model. Now, if you come back, if you if you can be like a little Nas X and figure out how to hit it again and again and again, that's cool. But they they don't even have a model like that. They don't even need A and R. Everybody trying to get famous, influencers, what they call them, right? And that's what leads me to a fascinating, at least I find it fascinating, a fascinating um, observation about hip hop. And this goes back to where we stand. kind of this is now we're making a turn toward the end, to bring us together. Everybody doing hip-hop went to school. When you listen to hip-hop now, what you're listening to is people who are the products of their communities and their schools. Mm. And you can tell in the shifts in language, the shifts in metaphors, the shifts, not only the experiences they had in in the world they're living in now, and we know the world now is very different than 20 years ago. We saw this fool Mark Zuckerberg with his technology wow. when friends created to get girls <laughs> trying to now turn this thing you know you know, uh, you know what it ain't any facebook no more it's uh what they call it meta it's Meta. oh that's well that's different let me restore that six billion dollars you lost in a couple of hours two weeks ago i'm sorry it's Meta now no but the virtual reality he's talking about now you know this is the way the world is going we're going from the internet to virtual reality yeah yeah. And if you better be careful, because while we're talking about virtual reality, let me see if I can find yesterday's Financial Times. Oh, man. Now, this is uh I won't be able to find it quickly. That's too bad because it might be on today's paper. I have, you know, I just haven't had a chance to. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Here it is. Undefeated. Yeah. Now, here it is. Right. No question. I keep the papers until I throw them away. That. Look, this is Mark Miley, the uh, the. Chief, chief, uh, the chief, uh, joint chiefs of staff, chair of the joint chiefs of staff, General Mark Milley. Can we see the headline? Pentagon chief admits alarm over China's hypersonic weapons tests. Let me read to y'all while everybody putting these uh, virtual glasses on and looking at Mark Zuckerberg trying to save his damn company uh, by rebranding. While that's going on in the virtual world, let's go back to what some people call the reality-based community. Here's the first line: The U.S. military's top officer. This is yesterday's paper the U.S. military's top officer has confirmed that China recently tested an advanced hypersonic weapon, calling it a very significant development to which Washington was giving close attention. General Mark Miley, chair of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the test of the nuclear-capable weapon was close to a Sputnik moment, referring to the start of the space race between the United States and Soviet Union when the first satellite was launched by Moscow in 1957. What was the weapon? Well, on July 27th, China launched a hypersonic glide vehicle which travels at more than five times the speed of sound mm-hmm. and maneuver like the space shuttle on a rocket. You know what that means? That means that every missile defense system in the world, including the United States, is as of that launch. Absolutely. <laughs> no question. They got a rocket oh, that absolutely. can go into orbital space, go around the world, when it gets over New York or Kansas City, drop back down in the atmosphere, drop the nuclear weapon and be gone. Your move. Oh, well, no, I, I was with Mark Zuckerberg. I, I was a boom, what, what ashes? So let's be clear. <laughs> while these people right here generate, now I don't mean they'll ever use it. It does mean that whatever budget that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and the 50 white nationalist party members, including Tim Scott, are holding hostage and keep shrinking down. While all that stuff is being negotiated to be less than what it should be, because China did this, Watch the Pentagon come back and most of that money, particularly when the white nationalists take back the Congress in 2022 and perhaps the presidency in 2024. All that money that people couldn't agree to spend on because the 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 the, the capitalist class that George Jackson said got to be destroyed has paid mansion and cinema enough to block it and has already bought them other 50 white nationalists who need white nationalists votes to be elected, which is the main reason that they won't vote for anything that will even help their own white national constituents, that that money that will still be there, they're gonna spend that now on an increased Pentagon budget and they are gonna scare everybody with the threat of a nuclear China that's got a weapon that can now drop down here. So we gotta spend 15 trillion dollars to create another defense weapon. Now I'm just telling y'all now in, in October, 2021, so that in October 2022, when it becomes the story, because ain't nobody paying attention because they too busy uh, looking at football games and stuff like that, you won't be surprised. Anyway, so what was fascinating to me about this hip hop thing, again, listening to, you know, Nick talk to them about curation. And I know that this isn't new, but for me and particularly for them, it's important to hear. It's very important for these 18 to 22 year olds to hear it from somebody who they revere. Why? Because they grew up on him. You know, somebody who as a man approaching middle age can walk on a college campus and all the middle school students as we walk into campus like, Nick, wild it, wild it, and then go in the room and all the kids is like, we watch you on Wild, I want to be a Wild Out girl. I'm like, oh my God, you want to be a Wild Out girl. And Nick is like, no, you don't want to be a Wild Out girl. Oh yeah, man, but you can tell them that, but they see you five, six, seven days a week. And so my point is that to have him talk to them, different than me talking to them, Obviously, and when he's telling them, not only do they have your number, they built the machine that gives out the numbers they give you. (laughs) It's not your number, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? You think you being a creative and an influencer, what you're doing is being brought into an algorithm, and the profit keeps building, the profit keeps building. Now that's different than what hip hop started as. Hip hop started in the governance structure. As Africana ways of knowing, ways of looking at the world, thinking about the world that got pumped into science and technology, turntables, sound systems, microphones, musical instruments, mixing boards like the ones Lee Scratch Perry had in the Ark, the Black House in Kingston, Jamaica, all the way up to and through the ones Drake uses or Kanye uses, the 808 drum machines and all the other things. Parenthetically, I remember when the, the Japanese guy who created the 808 drum machines passed away a couple of years ago because I brought the article to the class and we started talking about this question of beats and I make beat making, this kind of thing. And then it filters into the cultural meaning making. In other words, how do African people, this is another category we use, how do African people create music, dance, art, these these, these forms of cultural texts and practices to mark their specific time and place. And then of course, Movement and memory over time, how do they remember certain events? And that's where I want to really kind of wind that this last quarter of it to this hip hop conversation. All right, remember, I said that you know, last Tuesday, uh, I was honored, blessed, and always humbled and very happy to participate with the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which, as I wrote in Ebony, um, I mean, it was the, the higher ed article I wrote when at the beginning when the, when the museum opened. I think of more as a shrine than a museum. And Kinshasa echoed that. She said, I like that, a shrine. I don't mean a shrine like a holy place, like a sacred place, although I do kind of mean it. And by the way, when we talk about Halloween, hallow is from the Middle English. Um, it, it is a word that refers to something that should be venerated, something that should be made sacrosanct or holy. And we know that the Celtic origins of Halloween were about rituals uh, marking the end of summer, the beginning of fall, where, the, where scarcity will become the rule rather than the exception. So the idea is if you don't have enough food and you have a transition uh, season. And in this transition season, they say this is the season when. The world of the living and the world of the dead are in close proximity, so therefore we have to be very careful. And plus, we don't have enough to eat. So if a ghost show up at your door, you better uh, put out a bowl of food. Now, it's candy, of course. Twenty five percent of the United States candy is sold during this season. A quarter of the candy. Um, uh, but also, you know, if you come to the the, the door, uh, if, the, if the ghosts come to the door, You should meet them in a costume, too, because you might be able to throw off the scent. They may think you're one of them. Hence the skeleton costumes, the witch costume. You're trying to prevent this incursion into your home because you have scarce resources now. You're going into fall and winter. Well, of course, the Romans who come uh, and conquer the Celts, along with the English and everybody else, you know, this traces back to the papal. Uh, edicts and the papal edicts in halloween go from pope gregory the third and pope gregory the fourth this would have been around the eighth and ninth centuries where they create these rituals of veneration for martyrs also the virgin mary so you know martyrs in the catholic tradition uh, many of them are also known as saints so the whole idea is that the ritual of uh all Saints' Day is created by the Catholic Church to venerate these saints. But as they're conquering these people, as they advance and conquer them, you can't just take all their rituals. That's why you get this car crash called Easter. That's why you got a, a, a damn uh, evergreen tree in your house on December 25th with a manger underneath it. It don't make no sense. No, it don't make no sense. It's the the European holidays are the, are, are ritual days which literally mark the history of European conquest. That's why all the car crashes are there. What's a tree got to do with a damn uh, manger? I don't know. Well, what's a bunny got to do and eggs got to do with Jesus Christ in the grave? Nothing. They're conquering people and you can't make them throw away all their ways of knowing, all their movement and memory, all their cultural meaning making as you expand your social structure. Same thing with Halloween. The day was not all Hallow's Eve, all consecrated people's Eve, all dead people's Eve. The day is all saints day. When you venerate those ancestors you want to, it's ancestor veneration. But guess what? The night before, since you conquered these people and they got all their crazy-ass rituals, you got to bring them in. So you got the scary ghosts. (laughs) You got all the kind of stuff going on. And while you're doing that, your pathologies on All Hallows' Eve, and make no mistake about it, the relationship European ways of knowing have with their ancestors is fundamentally different than the way all other cultures have with their ancestors. You're not going to see no scared of your ancestors in Asia. You're not going to see no scared of your ancestors in Africa. You're not going to see no scared of your ancestors in the Western Hemisphere, the indigenous people, which is why they don't celebrate Halloween in these other places. Halloween is a settler ritual that finally makes it over into North America because the Puritans didn't celebrate it. They weren't Catholic. And they were strict on that stuff. But as you bring more Irish, more Italians who are Catholics, and you see the places where the Spanish conquered, including Mexico, you find that even the Mexicans who have a Day of the Dead, if y'all even see the little Disney movie, Coco, they venerate their ancestors. They ain't scared of their ancestors. Excuse me. But you, you're the one out here. Boo. Ah, I'm scared of my ancestors. Why? What kind of relationships do you have? Hmm. <laughs> were you scared of your ancestors? Oh, you know what? No, no. I understand why because you're from a part of the world where you had to have enough to eat. So you can't feed the ancestors. I have friends of mine, I'll never forget one time, this is many, many years ago. It's around 1997. We were in Tuskegee for an Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations Conference. And my dear friend, uh, uh, Afia Zakia, Dr. Afia Zakia, and she would always do this and it got me to doing it. you sit down to eat we were we took a break we're we going in a little diner in town we sitting there all of us young people you know we're going to change the world we're going to stay up all night talking and arguing debating go to the conference the next day so we sitting there we order everything stuff because afia always takes like a little coffee saucer she asks can you bring me a cup?" okay she put it there and then whatever she's eating she gonna put off a little corner of it and put a little on that plate which you know i gotta feed the ancestors when you eat, you feed the ancestors. Well, Europe, when you talk about scarcity, not only are you going to eat everything on your plate, damn the ancestors, you're looking around to see, are you going to finish that? In other words, <laughs> scarcity drives this kind of thing. And so trick or treat, trick. Why well, y'all got people out here trying to trick people? Well, and there's a whole nother American side to that, of course. After all these immigrants come from the, from the mid-19th to the late 19th century, you see the ritual begin to change. By the first quarter of the 20th century, you see the newspapers and media saying, look, y'all don't be doing all this crazy stuff, this religious stuff. It becomes secular. And then, of course, it becomes commercial. It's a social structure figures out how to make money. So now, to uh, this weekend, people are going to have their dogs dressed up like witches and dogs and all kind of things. Yes, the dog don't get blackface. Um... Uh, They're going to have themselves dressed up, all of it's commercial now, but the roots of it are in ancestor veneration, and people damn near forget that November the 1st and 2nd are All Saints Day. So you should be venerating the ancestors, but many people too hung over from stuff, and I won't even get into the apples and all that, because there are Roman figures, deities that come into why they eat apples and stuff like that. Or what happens when you have scarcity in the United States, like a declining tax base, uh... Um, unemployment, uh, underwater mortgages in places like the Rust Belt cities, particularly a place like Detroit, which is why in the 1970s and 80s, you see the ritual turn into Devil's Night, which is a whole nother thing in terms of mayhem. But we'll talk about that another day. The point, though, is that this week leading up to Halloween, as I said, I was with the Smithsonian on Tuesday, and we were talking about the museum as a shrine. And the museum is a shrine where people go, in many ways, to venerate those ancestors on a daily basis, and I said it's not important to try to tell one story as much as it is. You got a lot of stuff in one place, and everybody goes in there. And Paul said this, Gardulo. He said, "I'm sitting, I'm standing in the Reconstruction exhibit, which is all about how African people try to create a whole different society in the 1860s and 70s." And he says, "I'm listening to the conversations, and I'm like, wow." I said, "That's the whole point. You put the stuff in there, and you get out of the way." There's a Bible in there, for example, from one of the sisters who survived the slaughter in um, Mother Emmanuel, AME Church. She loaned her Bible to the collection, so you see it there. It's in the corner where they talk about Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland and 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 the legacy, the afterlives of enslavement. What do, you so- think, what do you think about that settlement that they just had, uh, the eighty-eight million? Did you talk to Bakari yet? Yeah, I, mean- I didn't talk to Bakari.
0: I talked about it yesterday, but I haven't talked what to Bakari. <laughs> said. Um, the 88 is to, you know, give a F, a middle finger to the to white supremacy because that's their number. Yeah. That boy, that that Cretan brought, brought 88 bullets yeah. uh, to kill those people. So the 88 million, uh, the settlement number was very purposeful. Um, and no, no amount of money can replace those beautiful lives. Um, but, you know, it's Justice Department money, which is taxpayer money. It's with, our money. Which with we don't have it. That's Bezos them and Zuckerberg aren't paying because they don't pay taxes. Right. So it's, it's coming from us, not them, <laughs> not the people who actually should be forking over the dollars. Um. That's right. But man. I just, you know, I don't know. I don't know.
1: So I just- well, yeah. When you say you don't know, that that's pregnant with meaning. When you say you don't know, what, what 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 is unsaid in that?
0: There's so many of these cases are boiled down to settlements now, um, and they keep happening. So it's. It's
1: not a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. It's not a deterrent. It's. I was listening to um um to Jennifer Benjamin. Well, Jennifer Benjamin Pinckney, uh, Clementa Pinckney, Senator Pinckney, Reverend Pinckney's wife, and she mm-hmm. said, "I would give every penny back to have Clementa back, so that you know, Alana and Milana, our daughters, would have their father back." But absent that, you know, this is a measure. Um, and listening to Ronan interview, Sharon Richler, whose mother was killed. And she said, we have to change, close these loopholes, these gun loopholes. Because, you know, one reason they settled, they said it was a loophole. We missed it. Yeah, laws can't change nothing. I mean, laws should be changed. But at the end of the day, nothing changes. You keep engaging in the slaughter. And when I saw that number, 8-8. Eight, eight, and they said, you know, that's just why we uh, settle on 88 million, because, you know, the eighth letter of the alphabet is H. And 88 HH is hell, how Hitler. So that's the number I thought to myself. Oh, I'm not going to say what I said. I'm going to censor <laughs> myself and I'm going to say this. How remarkably twisted around in our heads. Pause. Let me let me come at this another way. By way of metaphor, because, you know, in the classroom, metaphor is often the best tool. tie a thing we know to a thing we don't know. You know, I live now. And as I told young people for the 10 years I lived in Philly that I was working at Howard and I miss Philadelphia a lot for a lot of reasons. But I said every morning I get up in a city where they made up America and I take the train to the city they made up for America. And I said in the city where they made up america there are many statues many buildings where they celebrate themselves in the city they made up for america they literally designed the city to celebrate themselves and every time i think about uh, my friend dr jeff menzi uh who is uh, at morgan state university my, my buddy uh um ray winbush jared ball um Ida jones all the people at morgan state the morgan state bears but Jeff often talks about this. He says, when you engage in rituals, many times you don't even know you're engaging in a ritual. So when you go around the statues in DuPont Circle, when you go and meet somebody at Union Square in Columbus Circle and look at that Christopher Columbus statue, you don't think you're praying, but you are.
0: Mm-hmm. because
1: your energy, the energy of it looking at you and you looking at it and thinking even at a split second about it, you're giving it energy. This is the power of statues. These are the power of buildings. Uh, You know, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the White House, the Capitol. Who's the White House? So I should lower my voice. F you! Oh, no, you can't do... Why? Because this is a shrine for them. This is a shrine for them. That's why I love all the museums, including the African-American Museum. The museum that you feel that power in in a different way is the Museum of the American Indian. I promise you, them Native Americans of the hemisphere, they designed that museum for them. Now, you want to come learn about us? Come on. But we ain't trying to build no bridge unnecessarily. We are here. I love that museum. If it's so-called Thanksgiving, another like Halloween, uniquely American holiday in a way, if it's, if if I'm in D.C., I go down there, cause it's open. I don't want nothing to do with your genocidal holiday, but I'll come down here with these Native Americans, cause they have rituals down there. I go down there and watch the ritual. Hey, who are you? I'm just your cousin, your brother. I'm just sitting here. Come on in, no question, cause I love it. But but Jeff talks about that. Menzina, you know, when you go around these statues, these circles, it gets in you. So why do I say that? Was that relate to what happened to Mother Emmanuel? You took a number. that celebrates how Hitler and white supremacy, the number of bullets he had, and you made that the number of the settlement, fool, why did you make it 99 or 89? You just reinforced their number. Now I ain't mad at you because I understand where you went to school and I understand the impact of the social structure on your education. And I understand that perhaps that was brought up. I pray that it was never brought up in any settlement discussions. Can you make it an 89? to show the triumph over the 88 or if you must use the 88 as your point of departure why would you reinforce the 88 because guess what your open enemies is like yeah they paid them but they know how hitler Hmm. so Mm -hmm. that and it's i mean I, i ain't criticizing nobody i'm just saying this is why we have to have an africana studies framework and lens because if we don't If we continue to co-mingle the social structure with the governance structure, all we're going to keep doing is giving energy and feeding that social structure. And as the boot falls on our neck, there will be three or four pick-me Negroes who they'll pick out to do diversity, equity, and inclusion training, you know, to give awards for telling the truth about the place to our face while we have everybody else put on the net. We'll let you out of your cage long enough to come around and growl at us real good. And then we'll, you know, pet you. And then uh, now, if you bite us, we're going to your, throw your ass back over there with the rest of them. But, but in the meantime, we never change the structural arrangement. It never changes. And God forbid that while we're in this conversation, another bunch of people get slaughtered. And then we just start the process all over again and they already start doing the calculus on how much we got to pay them in five years.
0: Let me thank you uh, once, you know, and I'm sure Bakari didn't know. No! I, know. I, I didn't know. You know what I'm saying? As you're talking, I wouldn't have thought about that. I I, I, I never to this day thought about the, the, the ghosts as ancestors yeah. for queen. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And then once you tell us, it's like the light just it just comes on. So I just, I just want to say thank you for that. Um, yeah. and, and this is, you know, again, before people start making decisions, maybe they should sit down at the feet of somebody. Like, you know, come ask a question. Ask somebody. <laughs> Damn, don't just... Or we, else, we be together. right? with right that right. room being full of people who, you know, basically circle jerk. They basically, right. you know, no one's challenging anything.
1: All right. Nobody's challenging. It. It. Right. No, no, no. But, but the tragedy is we think we're challenging. it, And that's the tragedy. So, yeah, I mean, it's in terms of hip hop, hip hop comes out of cultural meaning making where we are standing in our own governance structure, who we are to each other. It comes out of ways of knowing. Where we're celebrating, we're arguing, even our arguments have style, the toasting tradition, the MC Cypher tradition even our debates and arguments. I wonder if any of those so-called fights, 26 fights, I guess they may have been fist fights, how much of those fist fights had to do with misunderstanding the code? What was the context? In my experience as an educator, particularly when I was working directly in the school district of Philadelphia for the years I was there, I spent many a day in schools, understanding that whatever the conflict was in the halls of Denver Bieber Middle School or West Philadelphia High School, those were conflicts that came from the community into the school. In fact, I've been in schools where some of the people came to school the next day to get at each other to fight because they couldn't go from street to street in the neighborhood to fight. But they knew they was going to see each other tomorrow in school. So we don't even know. All we know from the reports in Shreveport is they fighting in the school. But do you know where it came from? Do you know who was sent to the school that if you don't fight them there, we're going to fight you when you get home? You ain't covering none of that, but you sit in the library and so on. None of you have degrees. And so what makes you qualified? <laughs> I'm going to follow your ass to home. I'm going to follow you home. You ever been in a fight in school? <laughs> no, I can't say that I have. No, because you outsourced your fights to the rest of the world. It's called American history. So your peace in your school was bought at the cost of people fighting in a sweatshop in Haiti and Dominican Republic, of people in Africa trying to feed themselves because they could feed themselves till you showed up, of people in Central America trying to get to the United States because you didn't destabilize their damn government, but your peace, you were peaceful. Now you sit here and ask, um, what qualifies you to have a What qualifies to me is I see you and I know you shouldn't have nothing to do with it. You know what the look is? You ever heard of the look? <laughs> I know you haven't. I just gave you a little taste of the governance structure as that sister did, and she turned him back up on his heels. But hip-hop comes out of those relationships in the governance structure. And then they used the science and technology of the moment to create cultural meaning-making. And in that cultural meaning-making, you see them in Scott's movement and memory. So when you hear hip-hop, You are hearing all of the formations of Africana, but you're also hearing how the social structure has raised a relentless war to subvert, to monetize, to control this governance, this maroonage, this self-determining culture. Now, this is where we're in. This will take but a second. Even as I saw in the paper, uh, today's paper that Gil Scott-Heron is going to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I just started laughing. Because here's the point. I want y'all to hear this in Cleveland. In Cleveland, Ohio. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Was it Bring the Noise, Public Enemy? Stick a Chick in Miami. Terminator X rocks the jam. Who gives a F about a GD Grammy? I don't give a damn about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know why you induct one of the greatest culture keepers of the last century? into your rock and roll hall of fame because you want to stay in control and relevant. That's why. Because Gil Scott Heron said it's winter in America. And you put him in the rock and roll hall of fame the same way you put lions in the zoo so you can look at the ferocious lion and remind yourself that you tamed it. That's why. Because you would never approach a lion in the wild without a weapon. You got to put him in the zoo. You got to put her in the zoo. So you put your rock and roll hall of fame is the zoo. gil got here. In fact, this is what Fred Douglas said. The first page of this, uh, this is the first quote you see. Douglas said, The question now, Fred Douglas says, after the Civil War, do you mean to make good to us the promises in your constitution? And I asked this question the other night. I said, I hear a lot of talk today. We've been talking about our country, we're better than this, our country. but why did Fred Douglas say your constitution? Because he understood, it's your constitution. You're the one on trial, not me. So, and on this, on the eve of the, uh, the announcement that that he's being inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they'll be like, "Congratulations!" I'm like, "Why? Build your own damn hall, and then you decide who gets in." But you can't do that because you wanna, you know, play them 88 keys. No pun intended. But the point is that hip hop has been included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And anytime you start talking about hip hop, you start talking about narratives. One of the first things we do in my class, my hip hop class, we start with the end in mind, the final project, you got to create a narrative of hip hop. But in order to create a narrative of hip hop, you have to have as wide an exposure to the various forms of culture meaning making as possible. And then you also have to generate your own lens assessing what you mean in the various elements of hip-hop. Tagging, what they may call graffiti. We see the origins uh in Kemet, ancient Egypt. We talk, we've been writing on stuff for a very long time. So don't look for little writing, graffiti like Italy. No, hell no. So when you see people like Cornbread in Philly or Taki 183 or Lady Pink and them cats in New York, they are not being informed by a European tradition. This is Africana. We've been writing before anybody on the damn planet. So if you're going to do that, if you're going to do dance, if you're going to do break dancing, B girl, be boy movement, then you're going to look for the movements of Africa to inform how you assess the quality in contemporary hip hop or a moment in time, this kind of thing. If you're going to look at speech acts, if you're going to look at what they may call MC, you're going to look at the speech patterns and the speech acts of Africa. So we spend the first couple of weeks digging into these various culture, many major traditions of Africa. So people had the tools to look and see. Now, Lil Nas X, you may like or not like debate. We ain't going to debate likes and not likes. So maybe we can have a conversation. Tiffany, if y'all want to argue, it's cool. I'm enjoying the conversation. I'm listening. We love my influencers and this guy, how he came to be and all this kind of thing. And at the same time, we've learned enough about that shoe so you can read that red and that black, even if he's not reading in that way. You're going to bring a different lens to trigger a different way of thinking so that you completely evade this silly gender conversation. He's gender bending. What genre is he? LBG2? Why you? Uh-uh, uh-uh. Take all that and put it in the social structure. Now come back to your governance structure, your ways of knowing where those binaries don't exist as things that have to be recombined in some intersectional form. No. Leave all that in the social structure. Come from your ways of knowing and come up with a different way to think about everything from Old Town Road to WAP. And I'm not saying that that, that eschews the political dimension, but here's where I find it's very interesting. This is where I find it interesting. That same Smithsonian that just had this companion volume in this new exhibit on Reconstruction. They had the one on World War One. I. I was very happy to moderate that conversation too in the, in the exhibition. They just published something called The Smithsonian Anthology of Hip Hop and Rap. It's big book. Companion CDs, which tells you already that they this should give you the first clue. There are nine CDs. And they say here are, in fact, let me just. uh, They say this is, let me just go here. Uh, Let me see. The foreword is written by Lonnie Bunch, who's the Smithsonian Museum's, uh, you know, obviously the the director of the entire Smithsonian. The Smithsonian Anthology of Hip Hop and Rap begins with 44 experts. You see what it says, hip hop and rap. Now, remember what KRS-One says. And of course, he's written a couple of books and he gives lectures all the time on this. You know, rap in many ways is the commercial genre, rap music. Hip hop is the way of knowing, is the broader sense. And so when you talk about these elements of hip hop, tagging or graffiti, how they even call it, movement or dance or whatever, the question of emceeing, you know, the, the speech act, uh, DJing or producing or however you want to put it, putting the tracks in the music and creating, you know, DJing, putting the music together, that's four. Says their a fifth element? Well, you know, Bambodin and boys and all the rest of them may say the fifth element is the knowledge. And I always tell the young people, I said, the knowledge is always present. So if you want to call it an element, that's fine. But, you know, the idea of the way of knowing, we're going to use our Africana States framework. And I love doing that over and over again because young people get it and they begin to apply it. And next thing you know, you're breaking yourself out conceptually. So when we say hip hop and rap, I'm sure that was a political compromise. And so he says, this anthology began with 44 experts, performers, producers, music critics, industry leaders, scholars, and long-term aficionados who selected what they considered landmark songs. And I get it. you get To have the CDs, you got to have rap, right? This ain't the graffiti, although there are many. This book is 300 pages, and there are many essays and all kind of, you know. Anyways, it goes on. He says, this group selected 900 songs, which were de- refined to 129 tracks by our Executive Advisory Committee. The resulting collection spans four decades and presents the African-American experience as the quintessential American experience. That is our friend, Dr. Bunch's uh, requisite fop to America. And I understand why he has to do it. I respect why he has to do it. It, 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 I I, I reject it principally. I reject it intellectually. I reject it in my soul. But I know why that sentence has to always be included. In other words, the African-American experience is the quintessential American experience. They ain't saying that at the Museum of the American Indian. They saying, y'all roll on us. We still here. Come look at how we survived and what we was doing before we were so rudely interrupted. At the Museum of African Art, they like, come over here and look at what we've been doing all along from the beginning of time to now. At the African American Museum, they say the African American experience is unique and is the quintessential American experience. I I get it. I understand it. I ain't mad at it. That's why I had to look at this as a shrine, a collection of things to let me narrate it for myself. And they would say, yeah, that's what you should do. Very good, because I don't agree with that. And I understand why you have to agree with it. I even understand the logic in having to agree with it, which includes a violence of forgetting. Some stuff you better forget. But every time you bring something up and I'm looking at it and sitting in it, I'm reminded of why, yeah, this is the quintessential American experience in this regard. We are the victims of America, as Malcolm X said. So the executive committee, I won't read the name. I well, will read some of the names. Chuck D, Questlove, MC Light, Mark Anthony Neal, Knife Wonder, Jeff Chang, Bill Stephanie, Adam Bradley, Bill Adler. They're going to call this down to 129 tracks. Why is that important? This book, by the way, just came out. Y'all understand? In fact, is it 21 or 20? 2020. They had to have a, 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 a what do they call it? Crowdsourcing to get the money together to do this. This lets me know that it's not enough line item in the federal budget to do it, which is terrible. But they got it done. Kickstarter had a number of people n- donate money. And and uh, I won't go through. They did it in conjunction with Folkways. If y'all know Folkways, that's a whole nother conversation we have to have another day with the Smithsonian. Here are the tracks. Now, I'm going to show them to everybody. And if you want to pause and Nubia or pause in YouTube later, the folks who are watching, you can do that. This is 2020, right? One of the cats who was in it, who was on the selection committee after they got the 900 songs, they got them down to the 129, is this brother. This is his latest book. This Questlove book just came out, Music is History. And I'm gonna tie these two things together because the table of contents in this book, I mean, this book just came out. Every year of his life, Questlove from 1971 to now, 2021, he narrates the history of hip hop, the history of black music wow. through his life. I love Questlove. I ain't gotta agree with him. None of us agree with each other all the time. Hell, I don't agree with myself. <laughs> Wait, a minute, hold on, I thought about that. There. Du Bois is the roadmap for that too, in some ways. He's like you see Du Bois arguing with himself over 90 some years. Things he says in his 90s, he didn't even say in his 80s, much less his 60s or 40s or 30s. So you see this constant growth. Now there's some fundamental things that say consistent and I, I stay by them, but the more you know, the more you should change in many ways. So, but Questlove does something that this anthology does. And I'm not gonna go back to the book. I'm gonna go to the CDs. Remember, these just came out. So they should cover everything from the beginning of hip hop in some ways to where we are now. Here, I've got my eye on the clock here is the first y'all who is that professor
0: jam mm-hmm. master j and run dmc
1: how about that remember the day do you yeah. remember the time as michael jackson might say do you remember when we fell in love we were young and innocent then <laughs> I tell you what yes but that's 1984 who cool, herking them boys you really could trace them back to the late 60s, really. If you go to Jamaica and that, now you're going back further than this. But remember, the framework is America. And clearly, commercial releases. This is the first image you see in the CDs. Then you open it. Wait, that's the only picture? Okay, let me just let me do the images first. The first CDs run. Here the second cover of the three. What's the narrative being communicated mm-hmm. what would you say just off just, just just association I ain't got no I'm saying from this to this this is why gangster after the police to mm. yeah yeah because this ain't uh are we there yet this ain't Friday this is you know right. no, this the police yeah yeah after the police right or, uh, you know, it was once said by a man who couldn't quit. <laughs> Dope man, please, may I have another hit? <laughs> In other words, it all went to hell. Oh, man, God damn, I'm glad y'all set it off. Used to be hard, now you just wet and soft. And then this is the third one. What's the rhyme? Tell us. Sesame Street, one of these things just doesn't belong here. I the yes. What do you what do y'all so now I gotta really get into a deep dive, but anyway, now we get into the narrative. Remember, this just came out. So from the beginning to right now, you should have represented every moment, but this is a narrative. You've looked in the broad field of cultural meaning making, and now what you're about to do is engage using our African States framework in an act of movement and memory. And remember the movement and memory question of the six conceptual categories. The next to the last one asked this question. How did or do Africans remember this experience? Well, the first thing is it ain't all Africans in this selection committee. Okay, that's fine. So I don't know who fought for what, who got left out. I would love to hear the stories. So first thing is, you've got a social structure selection committee. It ain't governance. I know you want to, you want it to be, you want people to think it's governance. But the man has said at the beginning that this is the quintessential American experience. Therefore, you have surrendered at the beginning the self-determination factor. At least you have compromised it in a way to make sure that you know it can't be all black, and that's fine. That's good. That's cool. Because as long as you know what a thing is going in. You don't have certain expectations of it, okay. Okay, here we go. This one, Fatback King Tim the Third, Sugar Hill Game, Rappers Delight. You see, okay, this two, Grandmaster Flash, the Furious Five, the message at the end, UTFO, Roxanne, Roxanne. Okay, this three, you see, uh, no, it's this four, uh, this three is on the back. Look we'll this three, that's of sonic. Africa, very important uh, piece. At the end, you got third base, the gas base. Okay, this five, Queen Latifah, Moni Love, Ladies First, no question. All the way through eight, you can't touch this. MC Hammer, this five, Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. Yeah, you gotta include that if you talking about commercial rap. This uh, sixteen, OPP. This remember it ain't benign. nine. So this one, this uh, this six, first one, nothing but a G thing. Okay. This uh, 17 craig mac and them flavor in your ear remix okay very good wait a minute we're two thirds of the way through you gotta wait a minute what happened to the rest of hip-hop okay disc seven beastie boy sabotage at the end master p and them make them say uh well damn we, we gotta hurry up what about the disc eight missy elliott the rain super duper fly no question all the way through to little john and them get low okay but we still got 20 years with, di- the final disc Talib, Black Girl Pain, all the way through to Drake, started from the bottom. He's the last one, track 14. The History of Hip-Hop and They Mind, if you read that, list that track listing as a narrative of hip-hop. Basically, it's almost saying ain't nothing happened that needs to be recorded in the last 10, 15 years. It's very telling to see how it's curated. Finally, go to Questlove. 1971 stretched on history's wheel. 1972, music is the message. 1973, his prologue and protest. 1974, cool like that. He's going through the music that influenced his life as he's doing the history of Black music. He comes through, and guess what? You get all the way down. Now, his, this is like one, two, three, four, five, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35, 45. 45, 45, 45. There you go, there you go, You're right? All the way, Two thousand. look, you see what the last chapter says?
0: 2002 to the present.
1: If you take this as a number line in terms of significance, the people who are the experts themselves will have you think that ain't nothing really significant happened in the last 20 years. And I'm just going to let that linger because I don't know that I disagree. And these are the people call themselves narrating the history of hip hop. Now, don't y'all think about that. So when you ask that question and I ask that question, what happened? Apparently, if we take these as examples, Nothing much that needs to be remembered. Mm. <laughs> I, I believe that to be me true. Too, quite frankly, yeah. <laughs> so there's the answer, and that, and that and that is the difference between cultural meaning making. This is the hit today, and movement and memory. How did or do you remember that experience? They have spoken. Yeah, y'all love you all song. Come back in 20 years. Guess what? They'll still be doing rappers' delight, and nobody will remember who Lil Nas X is. Oh, okay. Uh- on that note, or Megan, for that matter. Let's just keep it gender balanced.
0: Well, she'll be in public health. Or, you know, she'll go on to get her master. She just graduated from.
1: Yeah, uh, well, so we hope so because she won't be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Oh, okay, Dr. Carr. <laughs> oh man, I can't tell you how much I love you, uh, oh, you and, and I appreciate you and all of the Nubians and folk and narrative, and yes. folks who are joining us on YouTube. We, you know, the, the the journey that we're on is one of discovery and remembering. Um, and it's important. It's important. So, I, you know, I'm glad to be on this journey with y'all. And uh, thank you for uh, enlightening. I mean, I'm, my, my head hurts because I'm like about to go trick-or-treating. <laughs> that's
1: all right. That's all right, <laughs> a, you know,
0: all right. With a different mentality, you know, like it just, you just, you're changing everything. And I just
1: say, thank you. Thank you. Love you. Love, Love you y'all. too.
0: All right. See y'all in them Nubian streets. See you in the streets. All <laughs> office hours on Monday, 7 p.m. Yes. 7 p.m. Come on back, y'all.